Welcome to Making of a Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be continuing my remedial self-education in the connections between religion and politics in Britain in the long 18th century. Uh, this is, you know, necessary because in a couple of days I'll be having a meeting with one of my advisors where he will look at me from, you know, beneath his, you know, very academic and professorial glasses and ask me a deep question about the Bangorian controversy or something else that has to do with, you know, clerical livings or any one of the myriad of difficult and tangled topics uh, that have to do with religion and politics in Britain. And so today, I'm going to be tackling one of the big historiographical controversies about what it really was to be in the British state. And this is summed up with the idea of the confessional state. We can think about it like this. How different was the British state from the mainstream of the European Ancien regimes? The old Whig histories had it that with the Glorious Revolution, Britain threw off the shackles of injustice and uh, you know, inequality and had instead a perfect constitution that was self-regulating with all of the different stakeholders in society, with the lords and the commons and the king all balancing each other perfectly, without fault. This was in direct contrast to the states across the water, primarily France, who instead of a constitutionally refrained monarch who had to go to parliament for his money, who had to make appeals to the people, who had to be open and honest, instead of all of that, they had an autocratic king who, you know, did what he would with the people's liberty and had all of these suckling lamprey-like ministers who cheated the people and made everything bad, really, really, really bad. After the French Revolution, of course, this criticism became even more trenchant, and the Whig historians had a really great inbuilt argument for why Britain did not have a revolution like France did. France had a revolution because the, the old Ancien Regime was bad. It didn't work. And Britain didn't have a revolution in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries because it already had its revolution in 1688. And it was a glorious revolution that did not involve a lot of guillotines. It didn't involve any guillotines. They hadn't been invented yet. But it didn't involve a ton of killing. In contrast to this idea of the Whiggish uh, uh, state that was entirely different from that of states in the continent like, you know, France or Spain or something, you have the idea mainly pushed by J.C.D. Clarke of a confessional state that argues that Britain was much like an ancient regime throughout the long 18th century, that the big change did not come in 1688, but instead in 1832. In this podcast, I'm going to unpack both of these arguments and then make my own attempt at an explanation, which is kind of counter to both, which I'm excited about because I have an original idea, which is what we're always looking for in this. So let's deal with the idea of Britain as a confessional state, as a member of the Ancien Regime. So in this view of the British state, the monarchy is held up by not just its relationship with Parliament, but also by its relationship with the Church. Of course, we should look 
to the tradition of Tory political philosophy, which says that the entire point of the state is to hold up this connection between the king and the church. The king is somebody who is divinely appointed, and it is our responsibility as subjects to be obedient to the king, and also to go to church and do all of that confessional stuff that you do there, like taking communion and you know obeying everybody and having parties and whatever people do at church. And there's a lot of compelling evidence that says that this confessional state really did continue on in the 18th century, that it wasn't destroyed by 1688 at all. One of the big things is that there seems to be a lot of political weight to uh, party politics in the era. Whigs and Tories, as I mentioned last episode, had a lot of stuff to do with what we might consider kind of abstract theological discussions about whether or not people should obey the state. Uh, One of the big moments here is something called the crisis of the non-jurors. After 1688, we have a problem. People have to make an oath of allegiance to the king. I mean, it's just one of those things that people did in the early modern period. But this might trouble uh, religious people who had already taken an oath of allegiance to a king who kind of left in dubious circumstances. The solution that was offered was to make people swear an oath of allegiance to the king, you know, saying that he was king de facto rather than de jure. He was just going to act like the king and, you know, I'm going to swear an oath of allegiance to that and I don't really care about whether or not he's really legally the king. It was a dodge. And there were people who accepted that this was a dodge and said the oath anyway because they didn't want bloodshed. But then there was a significant, small but significant number of church people who did not accept the dodge and they refused to take the oath. They were booted out of the church and set up a big schism. Uh, They're called the non-jurors because swearing the oath was juring something. And they uh, kept on having services and communions and stuff all up into the uh, 1780s. And during what's called the Whig Ascendancy, which is basically around, you know, 1715 to, let's say, uh, 1760, when the Whigs were uh, making claims to the nation about why they should rule, in, when people said, hey, look, Whigs, you're just sitting around uh, taking all the good government jobs, getting lots of money and not doing a ton of stuff, they would point their finger squarely at the other side and they would say, if it's not us, then you want the Tories? They are just non-jurors. They don't even support the Hanoverians. They're not proper Anglicans. They're going to, you know, smush dissent and welcome over the Stuarts, and everybody's going to be very unhappy if you get them. And so part of the, the central thing of this Whig political ideology was its opposition to the Tories' political beliefs, even if they caricatured them. The Whigs, on the other hand, uh, were also uh, had a political philosophy that was deeply enmeshed with religion. Um, they had an openness towards dissent and toleration, even though, uh, by definition, dissenters could not uh, actually be MPs. Just a small example of this, Whigs uh, might be uh, fans of what's called occasional conformity, uh, a way that people figured out how to loosen out the restrictions that, that the state had made 
on non-Anglicans. So the ideal here is that if you just went to an Anglican church and took communion once a year, you were good. You could go to your dissenting communions every week. You could go to your chapel and be a Baptist and have your own organization over there as long as once a year you came to the Anglican church and took communion. This didn't, you know, satisfy dissenters other problems, but it was a way of, you know, loosening the bounds that had been, you know, hurting them for a while. Another thing which suggests that Britain might be a confessional state is just how important the church is for local administration. I mean, if you look at a map of Britain at the time, the, you know, administrative unit is the parish you know, centered around a church. And it's not just a, you know, a symbol. Uh, in fact, uh, the people of the church, the clergy and the church wardens, were central parts of local administration. Local administration was super important in the 18th century. It had Britain had a really, really decentral state where the locality had a lot of leeway with not only um, running what we might think of municipal things like uh, provisioning um, aid to the poor, but also in carrying out justice. Most of these uh, offices were carried out by people called justices of the peace. And uh, there weren't enough people who wanted to take on this time-consuming, difficult, uh, tricky, and unpaid role. And so increasingly, 18th century, justices of the peace were drawn from the ranks of the clergy. I think that the number is about one in nine JPs were members of the clergy. And these clergy members uh, turned out to be some of the most active JPs out there. Clergy made up a ton of magistrates and church wardens and all of local government, you know, was just, you would, you would look at it. If you went to local government in Britain in the 18th century, it would often take place in a church. You would have clergy members sitting in the actual legislative councils. Uh, there was also ecclesiastical ecclesiastical courts that the clergy had in which they ruled on moral matters that were really, really active until the end of the 18th century. Um, and also, they were central to the political and religious calendar, which served as some of these symbolic uh, uh, knitting together of the political nation. It was at the church that people went to ring the church bells on the king's birthday and on Guy Fawkes Day and on Christmas. It was the church that people went to hear sermons that, you know, talked about what politics was. The church was a central facet of daily life and political life. In this model, the big change does not happen in 1688. It happens in 1828 with uh, Catholic emancipation and the repeal of the Test and Corporations Act, and in 1832 with the Great Reform Act. I don't want to go into this because it's a different kind of story. Suffice it to say that the idea is that the uh, uh, House of Lords and the Tories and the bishops kind of wash their hands of the confessional state, and all of a sudden it crumbles, leading to something new. Um, Nobody really believes this anymore, nobody that I've met anyway, but it's an idea to keep in mind. And then there's the other side of the argument. I mean, of course, there's the Whig view that sees this new kind of constitutional state in 1688 wiping away the slate clean, uh, but nobody believes the Whig view anymore. Instead, I want to talk about the idea that even though the church was deeply enmeshed in daily life, it was, you know, getting less and less enmeshed, that it was having less and less power. 
So a lot of people see the church as moribund. There's a bunch of problems uh, that come into it. People think that the clergy were not really that involved. Uh, there were problems with people having multiple livings, which meant that a clergy member would be, uh, you know, the clergyman of both one parish and another parish, uh, drawing on both uh, 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 salaries. Uh, this was a problem, of course, because they couldn't, you know, very well carry out the duties of the clergy in both places. Um, there was also worries about, you know, just kind of the dryness of 18th century religious life. There wasn't a lot of, you know, hymn singing and dancing, and it wasn't the mega church that people might be familiar with today. It was all kind of spare. Uh, it was not really all that decorated. Um, there was this idea that the clergy were not super involved in the day-to-day -day lives of people. A good example of this is one of the great diarists of the 18th century, Parson Woodford, who, even though he's a parson, spends his time not talking about religious matters or, you know, whatever you expect a parson to do, but writes beautifully about how much he eats and, you know, how he hangs out with people in the inn and drinks beer and goes dancing, and he's a very fleshy kind of parson. Another a uh, way in which we might see this happening is that British identity is increasingly not formed by this sense of parish belonging. It's not formed by a sense of being a member of an Anglican community, but instead it's an identity based around military successes of the British nation, of the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh and English out in places like Gibraltar and North America. And this has the benefit of including everyone. There's a ton of dissenters out there. There's a ton of people who are Protestants, but who are not Anglican. And this new idea of a aggressive Protestant uh, militaristic nation includes everyone. And then there's another view, which we might think of the practical financial view. Uh, the British state is not, you know, a state of churches. It's a state of money. What matters isn't that people go and take communion or, you know, uh, care about their clergymen, but instead that people pay their taxes because it's the taxes that get the ships and the guns that fund the wars that allow the people to have the military victories that then give them a sense of this new kind of British identity. And in this view, it's not the confessional state that matters. Instead, it's the giant pool of money that matters. It is the alliance between the landed interest and the moneyed interest and the middle classes that allows there to be the creation of a funded debt that allows the British government to have financial confidence throughout the 18th century. One of the ways that we can see this kind of reduction in the power of the Anglican state is the rise of what is called new descent. There's the old descent, which we can think of as Presbyterians and Baptists and independents. And then in the 1750s, there's the rise of new kinds of ways of being religious that is influenced by uh, Moravians. This is a very emotional, public, evangelical religion. Uh, the two big groups that we'll think of are the evangelicals who are Anglican and the Methodists who start out Anglican and then become something else. Let's talk about the Methodists because they reveal more clearly some of the problems with the Anglican state. Now the whole idea of Methodism is that it is creating a method for people to generate a person, personal and emotional connection to God. 
They do that through having an intense organization. People get together in bands that then elect representatives who go off to local uh, uh, groups. These local groups then elect members who go off to regional groups. These regional groups then meet every year at annual uh, conferences that talk about important subjects. Within the bands, people have you know prayer meetings and sing hymns and confess and talk about their spiritual problems. And they preach. They don't preach in the church, but instead they preach out in the fields and they walk through the roads and they convert people. It's headed up by a guy who you might have heard of called John Wesley. Um, he got converted to this in a club in Oxford and wanted to spread this Moravian feeling of a personal connection of God through preaching and walking and tracts and all this stuff. And the Methodists did very well, and they did very well, especially in those areas that the Anglican Church was not doing so hot in. The Anglican Church had a big problem because it wasn't actually very responsive to the social changes of the 18th century. And I mean this in just the most bare bones way. It wasn't building churches where the people were. There were new uh, communities in the north, places like Manchester and Birmingham that were growing incredibly quickly. and there were not a ton of churches there. There was also not a ton of political representation there. Um, Manchester was still governed as a, a manorial uh, uh, unit, uh, even up until the 19th century. It wasn't considered a city. It was, you know, a manor, even though it had thousands and thousands of people. And similarly with the church, it was not uh, given the kind of, you know, deep uh, church penetration that you would expect from a huge city. And into this gap, the Methodists came because the Methodists were independent of uh, parish churches. They were out on the road. They were preaching everywhere. They allowed people to have religious experiences even if they had been ignored by the state church. And this leads to my view of what happened, of my view of why maybe this confessional state started to decline. And my view is that the confessional state was organizationally inefficient. It was powerful because it was part of the state, but it was inflexible, which meant that it was resistant to the kind of innovations that would allow it to change in the changing economy and demographic situation of the long 18th century. It was this inflexibility that meant that it was slow to take up like hymn singing, and it was slow to build churches in places where people were, and it was slow to respond to the changing evangelical revival that made people experience religion in a different way. And this was because of practical organizational matters. The big moment for me is, in fact, the Bangorian controversy. Uh, this is about the Bishop of Bangor, Benjamin Hoadley, who in 1717 preaches a, uh, a sermon to the king in which he says that, you know, guess what? God doesn't care about the church. He just wants people to believe in him and worship. Your choice of church doesn't really matter. This freaked out Tories a ton. And Tories in the convocation, which is kind of like the church parliament, started freaking out about Benjamin Hoadley. And it was a big embarrassment. And people were worried that this uh, you know, revolt of the clergy would lead to wider political problems. And so what they did is they shut down the convocation of the Anglican Church. 
They, this meant that the Anglican Church did not have a representative body. It didn't have a place for its members to meet and talk and gain some sort of political consolidation. It didn't have a, a method of uh, people to consistently communicate with the parliament and with the state to deal with its needs. And this was a problem because it was a state church and it needed the state to make big changes. To get a new parish needed an active parliament. To get funding for the church above and beyond what was paid by the tithe and, you know, the conventional ways of getting money, you needed parliamentary help. And so as problems came throughout the 18th century, as would come in any time, the church was slow to take them up because it demanded a crisis for it to get on the docket in the parliament. And so it was hamstrung. But I do not mean at all that it was defeated. It remained incredibly powerful. It remained the biggest game in town. It remained the church where most people experienced the big moments of their lives. But when we look at this from an organizational perspective, we can see it as an example of organizational innovation in niche industries. So there's a great paper in organizational sociology about the craft beer movement. Um, the big idea here is that in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a huge amount of consolidation in the beer industry. Um, this is what you might expect if you read a guy named like Alfred Chandler. You get consolidation of mass market production because of economies of scale and scope. But the weird thing is, is that in the 80s and 90s and, you know, up to now, you get an increasing number of small companies at the margins. The idea is that they're filling out an ecological niche the same way that certain animals might feed on particular kinds of lichen in the forest. Big industry is not able to satisfy all of the needs of consumers and so smaller groups arise to capitalize on this. In the same way, the Anglican Church was the biggest game in town, but it wasn't flexible enough to reach out into all of those places in which it was needed, and so there was room for organizational innovation at the margins, which is why you see uh, the new descent having so much success in the places that the Anglican Church could not go. And this fostered a bunch of organizational innovations that became, you know, very, very central to what religion was in the 19th century. The Anglican Church, in losing out on these organizational innovations, lost out on getting the zeitgeist. So it wasn't that, you know, the clergymen were lazy. It wasn't that there was some kind of ideological and political, you know, uh, mass that kept the Anglican Church closely wedded to the state. It wasn't any of these things. It was simply a matter of organizational innovation. The Anglican Church was hamstrung from innovating. It was hamstrung from the kind of controlled entrepreneurship, which is the only way for large organizations to survive. Because of this, it allowed the rise of other organizations who then started to appeal more and more and more to the populace, which led to uh, it being less and less important to people. This does not mean that it stopped being important. It just means that it went from being the only game in town to being one game in town of many. Thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian. Uh, thanks to Duncan Barton for the image, and congratulations on being unemployed, man. Um, you now buy all the drinks. 
and thank you to Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, send me some kind of message, um, buy me a beer if you know me, uh, play a video game with me, do any of these things. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I will see you guys tomorrow.